Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. Have you noticed the way that you start a story, the way that you frame out a story really will set up what the other person is expecting? I mean, I know you know that, but have you really, really noticed the impact of it, right? So if you start by saying something that's exciting, then people are going to expect that whatever is about to follow is going to be exciting. Have you, ever, have you ever heard someone start a story off that sounds like this is going to be great and then it was like a nothing burger, right? You know, it's just it's a little disappointing. If you start off the story skeptical, then they are about to have something that's going to have to be skeptical. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Have you ever heard a story that begins with the phrase, you will not believe what just happened to me? You ever heard that, right? Well, what are you doing? You're expecting something unbelievable to be told to you in the next few moments. You're like, this is gonna be amazing. I'm all about this. How about this? Has anyone ever looked at you and said, don't get mad, but, has that ever happened to you, right? What are you expecting to do in the next few moments? Get mad, right? Because that person loves you and knows you so well to tell you, I know you, are about to be mad at me, you know, that sort of thing. So you set that up. I was listening to a podcast this week and uh, it, was a, it was a history podcast. So it was about um, some history and the host of the show made the phrase, he said, now this story is probably true, at least I hope it is. And then he started to tell a story there, which is not something you expect from a historic podcast. You expect all the stories to be true, but he really set it up in a way that I thought I'm here for this. I want to know, I want to know what this historian hopes is true. We begin a brand new series today in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to the Gospel of John. If you're using an app, uh, you can just navigate to it. If you do not have an app on your phone, you want one, you don't have a Bible with you, uh, Version Bible app is the one that I would recommend. And on there, I'm going to be speaking from what's called the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. John is the fourth of what we call the Gospels, big G Gospels, those four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Gospel means good news, and all of the Gospels uh, tell the story about Jesus, the good news about who Jesus is, what he taught, his death and his resurrection, and of course his ascension and then his imminent return. So these are the stories that are involved in the Gospels. And we're going to look at John's. Like other authors, John begins his book, the story that he's about to tell, with what's called a prologue. The first words, they are the foreword of a book or a story. They are setting up what it is that we are about to hear. How many of you have ever read a book, show of hands, you've read a book in which the beginning, there was like chapter one, two, or three, but at the beginning there was prologue or foreword. How many of you have ever seen that before? Perfect. Now, put your hand back up if you just skip that part. Anybody? All right, there's a lot of us that do that. I do that. I do that. Let's get to the good stuff, right? Let's get to chapter one. I don't need the author to tell me about what he's authoring, right? I just, I just need to get down here to the nitty gritty. Well, John has written a prologue. And we're going to look at the prologue. We're going to kind of see what it is that John is setting up. Before we do, I want to talk to you about the author and why he is writing. John, it's a common name, right? You know that name. You expect it to be in the Bible. 
John, the author of the gospel, is one of Jesus' disciples. He is not the more famous John, John the Baptist, who is Jesus' cousin, all right? So that's his cousin. This is his buddy. And his buddy, John, had a brother named James. John and James were followers of Jesus, and they had a particular personality. In fact, Jesus gave them a nickname. He called them the sons of thunder, all right? Now, I know it sounds like a wrestling group, but it wasn't. It was two disciples of Jesus. And like any other thunder that is sudden and loud and shocking, that's what these two brothers were like. They sort of had that bold personality and Jesus hung out with at least a few folks that were like that. At one point, some people don't do what Jesus tells them to do. And John and James look at each other and they ask Jesus, hey, how about we just call fire down from heaven and kill all of them? That was just sort of the thing that they were like, all right? I don't know the last time you prayed that God would send fire down from heaven and kill a bunch of people, but that's what John was like. At another point, we really see a self-centered nature when he and his brother and then his mama all asked Jesus if in the future kingdom they could sit in the most important seat. You know, it's like when your kids are fighting to sit in the front. That's what these two were doing to Jesus. We're so important. We're so mighty. We want to sit in the front seat. But here's the interesting part about it. By the time John writes the gospel of John, by the time he writes the gospel of John, he never mentions his own name. He never even talks about himself. This really loud and verbose and strong and uh, A-type personality writes a book and doesn't talk about himself at all. And the times that he does have to mention himself just because it was necessary to the narrative, he does so only by saying the disciple Jesus loved. Now, at first blush, at first reading of that, we often portray John as being a little bit arrogant in that statement, right? The, the one that Jesus loved. I am Jesus's favorite, right? That's sort of the way that it comes across. But let me offer to you this way. Let me offer you um, this idea to think about. I think it's exactly the opposite. I think John was so humbled by Jesus that he doesn't even use this name. He's just simply one of the guys that Jesus loves. Remember, John is not arrogant in saying that Jesus loved him. John's the one who wrote the words, for God so loved the world. That's not an arrogant statement. He's just saying, man, I've been saved by Jesus. I've been loved by Jesus. I've been changed by Jesus. Here's something else to think about. We're still talking about the author. We'll get to the book here in just a minute. That's what prologues do. Uh, They just delay things. But in the story of Peter or Paul, you remember those stories? They had this big life-changing dramatic event Peter rejects Jesus three times, runs away. He's, he's in tears. Jesus restores him into the ministry. It's this really heartwarming moment, standing beside the seashore, grilling some fish, talking to one another, saying, you are restored. You are brought back. In that moment, you can clearly see Peter's life, his perspective, his attitude changed in that dramatic moment. Paul is the same way. Paul was persecuting the church, hurting the church, killing people, dragging other people into prison. And then Jesus meets him on the road, blinds him, calls him, sends him. All in a matter of moments, restores his sight later. And from that moment on, Paul's life is changed. John doesn't have that. There's no Damascus road. There's no denial by the fire pit. So what is it that changed John so much? So loud, so sons of thunder, fire from heaven. I want to sit in the best seat. He was just accepted and loved 
and part of the group. I think we need to remind ourselves sometimes that one of the most powerful things to change the people that we want to be changed, some of the most powerful things to change a person and bring them closer to Jesus is just simply acceptance. Just simply love. That's the author. He writes this book. But why does he write it? Well, we don't have to guess about this at all. John was pretty clear when he said in John chapter 20, verse 31, but these things are written, I wrote this for this reason, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so I would encourage you, we've got a lot of people here today, a lot of you are guests, and there are, there were guests in the eight o'clock, there'll be guests in the 11 o'clock. I wanna encourage you in this way. You are welcome to sit here and to worship with us and hang out with us, even if you do not currently follow Jesus. Even if right now you're not what you would call in your honesty around your friends, maybe not around your mama, maybe not around me, but around your friends, you would say, I'm not really sort of a Jesus follower. I'm fine with it. It's just not my thing. You are welcome here. And we are glad that you are here. I would just encourage you, um, let me ask you to do a favor. And you don't have to, you don't know me, but let me ask you to do a favor. Consider following Jesus based on what John, his friend says, instead of based on what you think about Jesus. Like swipe the slate clean, listen to what it is that John says. We're gonna be in this for 26 weeks. You can come to as many as you want. You can come to all of them if you want, but just consider it on that basis. This is what John said he wrote the thing down for. Have you ever read and studied what it is that one of Jesus's best friends said about the guy he knew? And then decide for yourself. The second thing that I would encourage you based on this being the purpose of the book is if you are a Jesus follower, a disciple, a Christian, if you've been saved and you know other people who have not yet followed Jesus, I would encourage you to bring them, to let them hear what it is that their friend said, what it is that Jesus' friend said about following Jesus or even better, I'll tell you what it says and then you go tell them what it says and encourage them to follow Jesus if they should want to, all right? So the ball is in your court, whichever camp or court you are standing in, the ball is in your court. It's up for you to lobby that back to me or lob it back to here. So we have, uh, we have an author, we have a story that's about to begin. We have a reason to write that story and we are about to begin that story. One last thing before I pray, let me just ask you this or tell you this. John is clearly saying, I have a story. I'm about to share with you this story and it is an epic story, but don't just listen to it. There is an implied invitation in it. Meaning when John tells the story, he's going to be saying, this is what happened. Where do you fit in that story? What is your place in this big narrative? How is it exactly that we all fit into that story? So this morning, as you hear this introduction to the story and over the next couple of weeks, as we unpack the story, the question is, where am I at in that story? I would encourage you to answer that. Let's pray together and then we will look at John chapter one. Jesus, thank you so much for the Bible. Thank you for the choir and the work that they have put into the, the songs today. We thank you also for the high school choir and the work that they have done. Our hearts are filled and encouraged by choir music this morning. God, I pray that as we look at the introduction to a story about your son, we would be encouraged to follow your son. 
God, I pray that your spirit would move within us, open our minds and our hearts to hear for the first time, or maybe for a new time, the story that you are telling. And then God, we would find ourselves in that story. It's in Jesus' name we pray together, amen. Just the first couple of verses, the prologue goes all the way down to verse 18, but we won't read that. John 1, 1 through 2 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was with God in the beginning, all right? Now, okay, honestly, sometimes you read the Bible and you think, I have no idea what things say in there. I don't, you know, I don't want to say that at church. This is one of them, right? This is one of those things that's like, eh, it sounds like a tongue twister, but let's break it down here in just a minute. This is what John is saying. He begins with this very particular phrase, in the beginning, all right? And he, in fact, says it twice. You can see it right there on the screen in the beginning and then right here at the end of verse two. He is very clearly and intentionally trying to draw in your mind a correlation between a part of the Bible, it's called Genesis chapter one. Genesis means the beginning, at the very beginning of the book, begins with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and he said, let there be light and there was light, all right? So John is about to tell a story and he's going to tell that story by making you think of the story that has already been going. But this is important. He's not saying that story's over. He's saying that story is still going. I'm just gonna show you what it means. In the beginning, God created, all right? So immediately, if you're reading the Bible as this original audience would have, if you're reading this and you get to this part, in the beginning, you would think the next word is God created. You would expect certain things. We would expect God to be active. We would expect him to be active in what he says. Let there be light and there is light. We expect him to be pleased with it, that this is good. And I mean, that's very, very good. We expect there to be life. We expect that God would give life to a people and that people would live in harmony with one another and with him and that they would have a mission, a mission and a purpose and a plan. Go into all the world and be fruitful and multiply and subdue it have leadership over it, represent me in all of the world. You would expect all of these things. This is what John is doing intentionally, that we would read John chapter one, verse one and two through the lens of Genesis one, two and three. He's making us do that. It's the way that he sets up the story. And so you expect certain things. If I was to sit up here and first um, start to tell you a story, and I said, at first, I passed through the seven layers of the candy cane forest, and then through the sea of swirly, twirly gumdrops, and then I walked through the Lincoln Tunnel. You would expect a certain kind of story, right? You would expect fantasy to be merged with reality and something that is uplifting about an elf and a story and a book and all that in syrup. That's what you would expect. And that's what John does. So if we are expecting this, in the beginning God created, then you would expect at this point for God to what? Speak. That's exactly what happens. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was God in the beginning. So this is an extremely complex, I'm not even gonna lie to you. It's complex, it's deep and it's layered. It is theology. There are books um, upon books upon books, big old thick books that just talk about these two verses and what is meant by the word. There's a lot of Greek philosophy in it, a lot of Hebrew philosophy and a lot of the interchange in between. And then you have to translate all of that into English, all right? But here's what we'll do. I'll just tell you what it's saying. We'll just accept it and keep walking. 
The description of the word is that this word is eternal, that it has happened in uh, eternity past and it is gonna continue to happen in eternity future, that this word is God, that it is God, all powerful, all knowing, all sufficient God. And yet at the same time, it is distinct from God, both God and not. God and distinct from God. Eternally preexistent, eternally existent, God and with God. And this word in the next couple of verses, created. All things were created through it or him, for him, by him, sustained by him. Now there's gonna be other texts that really undergirds that idea. This is um, heavy stuff, big stuff. This is God almighty, this word. And it is described as a person, right? The word was with and the word created, that sort of stuff. This almighty, big, powerful God is the description of what God is doing here. And all of this is turned on its head in a moment. So if we can just pick up all of that and go, I don't fully understand it, but I get the idea that it's weighty. In verse 14, they add this another element to it. And that big weighty God with God, creator, eternal, became flesh and dwelt among us flesh and us referring to humanity. What it means is this, I'm, I'm about to tell you a story. And in this story, just like what God has always been doing, the all-powerful, amazing God has communicated word, perfectly communicated himself by stepping into what he has created. That's what's going on thus far in this story. And we understand that sometimes the, the communication of a person and a person can be merged into one. We understand that in humanity. We understand it lessened, okay? So let me give you an example. If I was to stand up here and say the name Martin Luther King Jr. and I was to say, or at another time I was to say the phrase, I have a dream. Those two things are distinct. There's a person, there are his words, but at the same time, they're almost the same. That person and his words have become the same. Same thing as if I was gonna say, give me liberty or give me death, and I was gonna say Patrick Henry. If I was gonna put those two things together or try to break them apart, they are the same. They are meshed together. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Those words and our nation, they are combined together. The people and the words are distinct and yet they are the same. And we see that in flawed humanity. How much perfectly more do we see that in this scripture? God is, and he has communicated perfectly. That word is communicating into creation by stepping into creation himself. So the question then becomes, if this is what God has been doing and he's continuing to do it, what is he communicating? What is it that the word is going to say. Look at verse four, in him was life and the life was the light of men. This message is about life. The message that God is communicating by stepping into creation has the implications of life, true life, real and living life. This life is being offered by the word as it steps into creation and it necessarily implies that humanity has been captured by death. Do you remember back to Genesis? One, two, and three, that God creates everything and it's good. God creates humanity and it is very good. He places him in the garden, places them in the garden. He gives them a mission, tells them not to rebel. And he says, if you should rebel, if you should not obey, 
then in that day you will surely, what? Die. And from that point on, humanity and creation was captured by death. And it's the same thing that we still see when we look all around us. Constantly walking through the, the valley of the shadow of death. When we feel and when we hurt and when we experience death and the death of a loved one or the death of some person that's even on the news that grips us and hurts our hearts, when we experience the death of a, a marriage or a relationship or, or an organization or, or a mission or a dream, we experience constantly everything that we look around, we are constantly faced with the reality that we live in a dying world. And then from the moment that we are born, we begin to die. And yet this message is stepping into this word, this person who is preexistent in God and with God, who has created all things, is stepping into that death to deliver a message apparently about life. And this life message is hopeful. Look at these next verses, 10 through 13. It says, and he was in the world and the world was created through him, the word, Jesus, and yet the world did not recognize him. And he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. This part's not hopeful. I just had to read this part to get to the hopeful part. They reject him. God steps into creation and they reject him. And yet, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born. What do you get when you get born? Life, right? Who were born not to a natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of men, but of God. God has offered life to all those who will recognize the word for what it is. Preexistent God Almighty stepped into creation and receive that word to themselves. That recognizing and that receiving. I've already mentioned it and you already figured it out, but verse 17 is gonna tell us that this word is Jesus. This word is Jesus Christ. This really is the heartbeat of what we do, inviting people into this story at this point, saying that our whole of existence drives us towards this. What happened and why you struggle and why we are surrounded by death and we ourselves are dying, but you don't have to stay in that spot that that's where we find your story beginning, but you don't have to stay in that spot. That if you will recognize Jesus for who he is and then receive Jesus for who he is, then you will receive life. And so the question then at this point is, do you receive him? I would encourage you to receive Jesus. But there's another aspect of this prologue of John, right? The first words, the beginning. There's another aspect of it that's gonna carry on all throughout the rest of John's book. And you find that in verse four again. Look at verse four, it says, in him was life, that's the message, and the life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness and yet the darkness did not overcome it. The word is not the light, the life is not the light. For those who receive the word, they receive life and they are given light. And the idea of the light is that it is advancing, that it is expanding, that it is almost like a military. You see that it shines in the darkness. It invades the darkness. It runs towards it like a army on a weaker opponent. That's what the life, the light is doing and the darkness is powerless against it. There's the next couple of verses here that are kind of funny. A little bit uh, interesting. Look at John 
1, 6, it says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John and he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. Now, when David and I were first studying this passage and we we're talking about it, this, this stood out to us. It stood out to us for one major reason. When you're reading John 1, 1 through 5, it's really um, uh, phenomenal cosmic power, right? I mean, it's like huge and big and like um, shooting stars and twirling galaxies. This is the word and the word was God and he created all things. And, and I, I, I hear, as I'm reading it, I hear the roar of an ocean and the beginning of some sort of epic music, right? That's what's all going on right there in one, one through five. And then six says, and then there's my boy, John, just switches. Like, why are we talking about John, right? It reminds me of the beginning of the Andy Griffith show, like just walking down the street whistling. Like, what are you doing here, John? Why are you in the middle of the scene? Why do you walk into the middle of this? What does this have anything to do with John? Well, here's the key. It's not about John. I'll show, you, I'll show you, look, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. And he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. What is this part about? Light. John is just an illustration. John's just an example. He's just the guy standing there to show us what it looks like when a person recognizes Jesus for who he is. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world and then receives him. I am not worthy that you would even untie my shoes. He is made alive and he testifies about the light. He is given a light that he shares with others. Y'all heard me a few weeks ago kind of messing around about uh, Christmas lights, right? Y'all hear me say that. I do it every year. Uh, the idea that Christmas lights or Christmas trees, they should not be put up before the day after Thanksgiving. Otherwise, it's an abomination to the United States Constitution. But some people do it. Some people do it, you know. And um, so I mess with people about this every year. Truly, honestly, do not care. But, you know, it's just kind of a thing we do. Uh, there was a person, even before I had joked about it this year, there was a person whom I love, a second fan member, who uh, saw me, ran into me at a Wampus Cat game here in town. And uh, she just, in the middle of conversation, says, now listen, my lights are up. So I got to confess, all right? Before you drive by and see these, I just want you to know my Christmas lights are up. And I was truly thinking, I don't care, that's fine. But she says, now here's the reason, here's the reason. She uses, uh, they use uh, uh, three wise, like a lot of people use. We, we use it here at the church. Uh, it's an organization, a company that will put your Christmas lights up for you. And she says, the only time I could get it scheduled was already. And so they've already come out. All right. They've already, they've already come out. They put the lights up. You know, what am I going to do? Right. And, and I agree with, she says, and listen, since I got them there, I might as well turn them on. <laughs> and hear me on this. I agree. If you pay to have your lights installed and they can, they can only install them July 4th and you turn them suckers on and you keep them on. If you're kind of the, if you're one of those red-blooded, red-necked Americans that keep them up all year long, then you like them puppies all year long. If you got a light, let it shine. John's telling us, look, if you follow Jesus, if you recognize and receive Jesus for who he is, then you have a light. You are like an invading force in the middle of darkness with a bunch of people who are dying. Tell them about the light. 
because that's where you find life. That's where you find God. So what John is going to tell us is that God is writing a new story. He's about to tell us this in the next 26 weeks, and he is inviting you to participate in the story. And that story is about Jesus and that you are the desired beneficiary of the story. So if you're not a believer today, I would ask you to trust Jesus, to follow Jesus, to at least over the next couple of weeks, consider who Jesus is and to decide whether or not you wanna follow him. But I will give you this warning. It is your right, it is your option to make that decision. You can make it now, you can make it over the next few weeks. Yes, I will follow Jesus. No, I will not follow Jesus. But I wanna be very clear about this. This is a life or death scenario and you are not promised another day. So you make that decision now, you can make it later if you have it later. The other thing that I would say is to those of you who are believers, people who follow Jesus, then I would encourage you in this way, you have a light, let it shine. So go tell somebody about the light that is invading the darkness. As I was studying this text, I got to, uh, I was unpacking the idea of prologue Remember, because it's not something we really like, we skip them. But I found out that in professional cycling, you know, like people that ride bicycles with those shorts, in professional cycling, there's you an image, <laughs> they have a thing called prologues. They have prologues. They're not always involved in a race, but they can be. It depends on the, um, the facilitator, the, the designer of the race, the person who is putting on the race. The first one was in 1967 at the Tour de France. They are normally the day before the race and they, are, they have to be, by rule, have to be five miles or less. And I read about this in the design, why this happens. Why would somebody choose to have what's called the prologue? You don't have to, so why would you choose to do it? Well, there's a couple of main reasons, and forgive me if you're into cycling, I'm not, I don't understand all of it. But one of them has to do with determining who the leader is, okay? So I know it's more complicated than that, but that's essentially the thrust of it. The second one is to introduce the riders because the prologue is done one at a time. You ever watch a race? Of course not, it's cycling. But have you ever seen a race? Have you ever seen a race on television or something like that? There's a giant pack of people and they're all like, you know, I guess the gun shooter, somebody says go, and then they all go off there's a giant pack. Anytime I see it, I think my kids, me a little bit, cheer that one person in the very front will fall down or something because, you know, chaos ensues. But there's that big old pack. So let's imagine you're watching a race and it's your, and it's your dad or it's your sister or it's your wife or your, you know, your friend. They're in the race and you're watching that big mass of people and you wanna see you, the person you came to see. Well, it's hard to see, right? But in the prologue, one at a time, they just ride out there for five miles. You go, that's my baby. That is my baby. That one right there. All right, y'all hungry? Um, that sort of thing. So you can do that. Who's the leader? One at a time. And then the other one is, and you would imagine we would get here, money, advertising. So advertisers pay a lot of money to, you know, put their name on those shorts um, so that when you're stuck at the light, that's what you read. Um, And so at the prologue, when they ride out there, you get to see the advertising, you get to see what they're about, you get to see what they're selling, okay? What John just did in this prologue was run Jesus out there. Just one guy. He ran him out there in front of everybody and he says, 
That's the one we're, we're looking at. He's the leader. That's the one we're looking at. And this is what he's about, offering you life and giving you a mission. The question really is, are you gonna follow him? Are you gonna follow that leader? Is that where you fit in the story? Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.